0: Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to the future where greed is not good. This is The Grow Show on CannabisRadio.com, and I am your host, Kyle Cushman. We're very excited to welcome writer, bioagronomics director, and cannabis genetics expert Robert Connell-Clark to the program. He is an authority in the fields of both industrial and medicinal cannabis breeding, and his work is widely celebrated both within the industry and in mainstream academia. His body of written work includes five books, multiple peer-reviewed articles, and he's also contributed several book chapters in collaboration with other industry experts – Rob currently serves as the project's manager for the International Hemp Association and participates in cannabis-focused conferences both domestic and internationally. Robert is also a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Phylos Bioscience Cannabis Evolution Project, a cannabis genomics company based out of Portland that has sequenced the genomes of thousands of ancient and modern cannabis samples. Today, we'll be discussing the preservation of land race strains, patenting genetics, and the future of artisan cannabis production. We've got a great show for you today, so let's get started. Welcome to The Grow Show, Rob. Thanks for being with us today. Good to be here, Carl. Yeah, man. I tell you, I'm sure that you don't remember, but we actually met in 1994. It was my very first Cannabis Cup. I think it was Cannabis Cup number seven or eight, and... I had my books there from Jack Herrer, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, and I had your book, Marijuana Botany, and I had you sign it for me. And Unfortunately, I looked for it, but I couldn't find it. I was going to read the inscription. I just want to let you know that you have been a mentor of mine over the years. Well,
2: it's been a long, strange trip, but I've enjoyed it. It's been good.
1: It has. And just for the people out there, I just want to mention that the books that you've written that I recommend everybody pick up, you started off with uh, Botany and Ecology of Cannabis in 1977, and then followed up with Marijuana Botany in 81, which is the one that really got me going. And then The Great Book of Hashish in 98 came out. And of course, the latest, Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany in 2013. Fantastic books for people who really want to learn from the ground up. It's like going to cannabis college, if you ask me. So, thanks for writing those books.
2: Anyway, hey, pleasure. You know, I just opened my mail this morning and found a paperback edition of Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany.
1: So, it's really? available
2: in paperback. So, that'll probably knock about 30 bucks off the price. Otherwise, it's exactly the same book. So.
1: Fantastic. Well, I haven't read it yet, but I am looking forward to it. You know, with all the numerous publications, and you're obviously an expert in your field, give us a little idea what got you into studying weed in the first place. Well,
2: it all happened at the University of California at Santa Cruz. I went there in 1971, entering freshman, got turned on to smoking marijuana, excellent stuff, and... I needed to graduate after four years, so I wrote a dissertation about cannabis that was later published as the Botany and Ecology of Cannabis.
1: Interesting. And your most recent publication, Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany, could you give us a rundown on what ethnobotany is and how it differs from botany?
2: Well, ethnobotany is the fusion of botany, the study of plants, with ethnology, which is a subset related anthropology, and it's the study of peoples. So ethnobotany is the study of peoples and their plants. And cannabis, of course, is a perfect subject for that sort of study. We have a long relationship with cannabis, and it, it has many ramifications.
1: Interesting. It brings up some of the subjects that Michael Pollan mentioned in some of his books as well. How the cannabis plant, did the the cannabis plant attach itself to humans or did humans attach itself to the cannabis plant?
2: Well, that would depend on how anthropomorphic you want to be in imagining these scenarios. But (laughs) basically, cannabis was incredibly attractive to humans. And because of that, humans have spread cannabis around the world. So it's benefited us and we've benefited it.
1: Most definitely. You and I certainly would never have met, and I'm enjoying this wonderful career of being a weed aficionado or a spokesperson, whatever you want to call it, but I really, really like being able to be myself and spread the knowledge of uh, cannabis every day. Could you please tell us a little bit about the Phylos Bioscience Cannabis Evolution Project? What is it? Yes, it's quite a mouthful. Um...
2: It is? Phyllis Bioscience is a company based in Portland, Oregon. They're a biotech company headed by a really smart and wonderful guy named Mowgli Holmes. And their interest is looking at the cannabis genome and figuring out ways to work with the cannabis genome. And one of the projects that I'm involved with them is working out the evolutionary history of cannabis. This is something I've been very interested in my whole life. And we have hypothetical models for how this may have happened. But it would be interesting to use the cannabis genome, the differences between individual plants within the genus cannabis, and try to figure out their relatedness. And one way to do this is to use random segments of the genome. It's a statistical technique, really, more than anything else. But it shows the relatedness between little bits of the cannabis genome between any two individuals. This is not saying that we know that we pull out genes and we know what they do. This is just random segments of nucleic acids that that uh, speak a language that can be interpreted by machines. And this then allows us to see the relationships between different groups. What's been done so far is, is checking dispensary samples from six states in America and basically what's been developed the model for looking at it, the illustration of it is is called the galaxy. You can look it up, Philos Bioscience Galaxy. You can find uh-huh. it on the internet, and it's fascinating. It shows the relationships between what we are smoking today, and the next step will be to get older samples and show the relatedness between, let's say, an original haze, and its Colombian or Mexican or Thai or Indian background. Exactly, what background does it have? It'd be interesting so, to know.
1: So, absolutely. Are you? Do you have any information yet as to what these differences are? You, have you distinguished differences between ancient cannabis and new cannabis that you can talk about?
2: Not yet, because the ancient cannabis, well, very ancient cannabis is almost impossible to find samples. Mm-hmm. But ancient and our framework is, there are samples that came in the 1960s, 1970s, varieties that came, the original land races that came that were our narrow leaf drug varieties called these days sativas, mm-hmm. and all this is pre-Afghan in my mind. That's, that's the changing point, is when Afghan varieties, commonly called indica, were introduced to, to North America and Europe. And this is the broad, leaf, broad leaflet drug varieties. That was the watershed right there. That, that changed everything for the way cannabis was grown. So that is one evolutionary step, if you will, or at least a step of the domestication of modern drug cannabis that we should be able to see in the genome data. If we don't see it, then we need to look harder. If we do see it, then it will be nice and satisfying, and it will give us a basis for looking deeper and, and farther back in cannabis evolution.
1: Do you think this is more important in the evolutionary sense of you know the values and the effects of the drug, or was it more valuable evolutionary as in humans would now be more interested in growing it because you know we could grow bigger, healthier, higher yielding plants?
2: Humans have found an appropriate use for cannabis everywhere it's been introduced, whether it's seed or fiber or drug or religion, whatever. and That's the key to the evolutionary path. It's not that we've developed any one thing. It's that we've developed appropriate varieties for different cultures many, many, many times in the history of the human cannabis relationship. So hmm. each time it's different and each time the plant provides what we need.
1: That is really, really interesting. I'm sure we, we got some he- heads out there that are just spinning. My next question is, why is genetic mapping of the cannabis plant important, and what can we do with this information?
2: Well, we could do a number of things. That evolution project is is one aspect, a really academic aspect of of genome research. Genome research in general, what people want to do is find the genes that determine different phenotypic traits in cannabis or any other organism, and then be able to... Use these genes, this genetic information, to either, in the case of cannabis, make improved varieties, possibly, varieties that uh, produce rare cannabinoids, cannabichromine, cannabigerol, These these compounds
1: are rare in cannabis the way it is today. Those are words I've never heard of. Could you say those two words again?
2: CBC. that's cannabichromine.
1: Cannabichromine.
2: Another cannabinoid that might have very interesting medicinal effects, for instance, cannabivarin, tetrahydrocannabivarin. This is a three-carbon cannabinoid, three-carbon side chain, instead of five-carbon like, like uh, THC. And that also has possible medicinal effects.
1: Cannabival,
2: that's CBG. That's another one. This Sh- is, sure. Uh, that's, that's the precursor to all the rest of these cannabinoids. But to have a variety where that builds up, rather than being converted to the other cannabinoids, that would make interesting possibilities. So lots to do once you know the gene sequences that determine the production of the biosynthesis of these different compounds. That would be one example.
1: There is, and I'm sure you believe, as I do, that in the near future there are going to be very many extremely beneficial drugs that are going to be derived from the cannabis plant. Am I correct?
2: Oh, I would think so, The the problem has been that there really hasn't been a reason to perform the research, the clinical trials in the mm-hmm. case of medicinal research that need to be made. This is always going to be a problem.
1: The well we're getting we're getting closer. We've got the DEA and FDA in collaboration finally decided to approve the PTSD studies. So that's yes, a step that's forward.
2: A positive, positive step indeed.
1: And maybe even monumental. I mean, it's a big turnaround from just a few months ago in their rhetoric.
2: Exactly. And what the important part there is not that they're going to begin the trials. That's important. Clinical trials are important. That's how we base our our trust in medicines. But the important part is that they've recognized that Veterans can now claim this in legal states where where medicinal cannabis is legal. That's the key thing. It's about access. It's not about learning. Clinical trials are to corroborate what we already know. We don't do clinical trials to figure out what's poisonous. We do clinical trials to figure out what's beneficial based on what we already know from unofficial human trials, that's called smoke and pot. Okay.
1: Anecdotal, as they would like to call it.
2: Anecdotal is an insulting way to say it.
1: Like that <laughs> an anecdote is
2: a, is a story that's not believable. So let's, let's call them N of one experiments or whatever you want. But we know it works. Okay. So to wait for clinical trials to approve access is wrong in my mind.
1: I agree. You need to have
2: access to begin with, and that's what they've just done for PTSD. And this is all because they're veterans, and it's all because it needs to be done, and it's all the right thing. And th- this is the kind of steps I like to see taken. Later on, they'll have the clinical trials, they'll show why it works. They'll show that it works, but we already know that. But they'll show why it works, which is really cool. That's science, and that's what we need to find eventually.
1: Yeah man, this is this is really cool stuff. I'm having a really good time. I'm sure the listeners are too. We're gonna take a quick break to show our sponsors some Grow Show love. So sit back, take a quick toke, and we'll be right back with more Robert Clark. The Grow
0: Show with Kyle Cushman will return once we cultivate through this short commercial break.
2: The next generation of vaporizers has arrived.
0: Low on funds? Don't worry. Weed Firm Replanted is
3: free to download.
2: Download Weed Firm Replanted for free on the App Store and Google Play today. Get growing, Mr. Growing.
3: Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade.
0: Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem. So I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go.
3: Burning issues only on cannabisradio.com.
0: Time to plant some more conversational seeds. You're listening to the Grow Show with Kyle Gushman. Only on cannabisradio.com.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Grow Show on CannabisRadio.com. Today, we're getting a higher education with our notable guest, Rob Clark, on cannabis genetics, patenting, and the future of cannabis industry. Our next segment is going to be a little bit about the future of artisan cannabis production and some other things. But before we move on, I have a few other questions. What do you see as the fate of our iconic land race strains, Rob? Well...
2: That's a sticky question. They're not all dead yet. That's a good thing. Yes. The sad part is, and everybody should realize this: so we've lost most of the land races that were the basic building blocks of what we know today as modern-day cinsamia. Okay. Right. These were narrow leaflet drug varieties that came initially in the '60s and '70s from Mexico and Thailand and Colombia even South India, Africa, these these were all narrow leaflet varieties that originated in the Indian subcontinent. And then around the late 70s, 1980s, we began to have an influx of broad leaflet drug varieties, the Afghans, what's commonly called indica today. Mm-hmm. And that changed the whole face of things, as I mentioned before. They're also land races. All of these are, were varieties. Land races are... Varieties that are raised by and molded by the selection of humans. You have local people who use a plant for their local purposes and needs. And that molds the variety. You have that local environment, and then you have the humans selecting for what they want to use that plant for. And that is the basis of a land race. So we have these land races that came to us. And then we began doing whatever plant breeding selection cultivation that, that we did as Americans and, and Europeans, the cultures that make the land race are just as important as the plant. That's part of that is the land race. Surely. When the cultures break down and the cultural input into cre- creating and especially maintaining this land race disappears, you lose the land race. This is not just cannabis. This is all um, indigenous crop plants. All right? right.
1: And it's culture as and well.
2: It's culture. We've lost these cultures. Times have changed in 40, 50 years, radically, faster than ever before. This has led to the degradation of the cultures and the land races themselves, in addition well-meaning as we might have been as a group, we took modern hybrid varieties back to regions like Jamaica and Mexico, and the local people, curious as farmers are, began to grow them, crossed them in with their varieties, just like Afghan got crossed in with all the narrow leaflet land races in the 80s, and we have muddied the waters. We, we now have a big, blend of the modern hybrid genome popping up all over the world this also squeezes out the local land races so greed basically has caused this to happen and just displaced well-meaning goodwill on the part of our culture taking improved varieties back to where they didn't have varieties that matched our expectations so there we are we we've We have land races left, and we have a future, but I have to tell you, first of all, where we are now, and that's
1: it. That's interesting that, you know, you brought it back to my opening about greed, and I'm of the belief that, you know, of course, I mean, it's obvious, once you take a strain from its natural origin, it's immediately going to change. Once you put it into a different environment, a different photo period, different water, different air, this changes the race immediately, does it not?
2: Well, it changes the selective pressures if you're looking at it on a genetic level. Right. And, and much more importantly, okay, you have a variety of grows outdoors. We move it indoors. Whoa, that's big selection pressure right there. You go sure. on hydro, ooh, that's another selection pressure. And the biggest selection pressure of all for the last 30 years has been...
1: Greed. Greed.
2: Bag look.
1: Bag appeal, yes.
2: <laughs> bag appeal, babe. You know, so it's part, of it. it's part of being able to flog it, so that's meant the most important thing rock bud rules very would you, sad
1: but would you consider any of these new hybrid creations as being of the same quality as as some of the original landrace strains that would all be in how you define the word quality sure well, I guess in a subject in, definitely in a subjective manner, meaning in a general sense in a wholly beneficial sense. Can you find the same appreciation for some of these newer hybrids that you can find for the iconic land race strains?
2: Well, they're very different. So it's kind of apples and oranges, really. But the the modern varieties are really strong, really flavorful. And within that span of diversity, they're quite diverse. They come in many flavors and many potencies hmm But if you go outside of that, outside of what's so far been analyzed in the Phylos bioscience cannabis evolution project, for instance, which is really just the the cluster of modern varieties, then you see lots of diversity. Really? Um, yeah, it's we're awash in the new material. And what let, let me just catch you up to speed here a little bit. I just returned from Australia. All right? Australia has a wide range of environments compared to to North America. They don't have places that are quite so cold, but they have places that are much closer to being tropical, a lot of semi-tropical areas. They're humid, Mm -hmm. and they're uh, long seasons. And Afghan varieties, the, the Afghan hybrid varieties, the ones coming out of Europe and North America for the last 20, 30 years, don't do well in large parts of Australia. Where they do do well in many parts of North America, especially indoors. But mm-hmm. the only place they'll work in, in uh, non-temperate parts of Australia is indoors. So they've not really been selected so strongly by the environment. You still have many varieties that are what we would call old school, narrow leaflet drug, you know, what we had before Afghan. And they still have a lot of that there. They call it bush. The, the Indo is called hydro. You know,
1: there's right.
2: this, this uh, environmental, cultural, agricultural difference between the two. But most of what people still smoke there is bush. It's what they're used to. It's not as strong. It's not as flavorful. It's iry as can be. It, <laughs> it, it, there it, There doesn't... Couch walk is not known in these varieties. It's refreshing, my friend. Refreshing. It was nice to see this. Nice to see that this still goes on. So they're not land races per se, but they're closer to some of the pre Afghan things than much of what's available today.
1: So there's hope. It is. It, 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 there's a lot of hope, and obviously, all of this education and business development and medical research hinges on global legalization and regulation. And here in the United States, cannabis law reform seems to be, you know, heading full steam ahead. With the FDA announcing recently that it intends to revisit the scheduling of cannabis in just a few weeks here. How would the rescheduling or descheduling of marijuana affect the cannabis business trade specifically in your mind?
2: Well, it'd make a lot of these gray areas, super profitable businesses uh, legitimate and possibly not quite so profitable, but I think legitimacy is a good thing. What's most important with for me is opening up possibilities for research and the scheduling of THC and cannabis and anything it produces essentially as schedule one has been very difficult. It, it assumes that there's no medicinal value. That's obviously incorrect because of that limits the amount of research that can be done. That has really slowed us down. So that, that'll be a certainly be an improvement as far as it affects business. It's hard to say, certainly it'll free things up, but regulation is going to be really difficult for people. I, you know a lot of people who grow great weed and they're really good people and that their boutique size grows, they're not really greedy, they're, they're artisans, they you know, they're they're right in that ballpark. But can they do paperwork? Can they pay their taxes? Can they do their accounting? Can, well, you can know, they follow rules and regulations. This is going to be a really Careful what you wish for. We all need you know, this. We need re- people to not go to jail anymore. That I really, really
1: brings me to my latest pet peeve, which I'm not ashamed to be bringing up on almost every show now, and that is the distinction between commercial and personal cannabis. And I personally, in my head, I believe that personal cannabis does not need to be regulated at all. I think the legislators should wise up and realize that they have a – a big enough issue on their hands to regulate commercial cannabis in a sane way. I've already reconciled the fact that there was really no way to set out to save the small marijuana farmer. So if we can't do that, let's at least take the restrictions off of people who grow it for their own purposes, for whatever those purposes may be, other than to sell it and to allow research and the passion and everything that brought us to the place where we are right now to continue to grow and not be stamped out.
2: It's exactly right. When you do allow adults to be adults, what you auspiciously left out of your dichotomy there, I mean, you're saying there's personal use and commercial use. You left out medicinal, and I know why you left it out, because that's the gray area that's messing everything up. Yes, it's good medicine, but to legislate it it medicinally is a nightmare. We should just make it so that adults can make adult decisions about the adult use of cannabis and other herbs in their own medicinal regimen for them and their families. It's nobody else's business.
1: Absolutely. I agree a a thousand percent that human beings should have the complete and sole right to decide what, what they want to put in their body. So I really think it's really the only way to eliminate the black market to me is if you allow private people to do what they want and the people that want to go buy the commercial garbage can go buy commercial garbage because it's easy for them. But So I'm going I'm to keep preaching about that. Let, let's talk about genetics and patents for a minute. Why would a breeder patent their strain? What are some of the major obstacles of patenting cannabis strains at the moment?
2: Well, two questions. Why a breeder would patent their strain is because they perceive that somehow that will protect their investment in having created that strain, whether it be tulips or cannabis. The problem with trying to have any intellectual property rights on cannabis is that in many jurisdictions, it remains illegal. And therefore, it is not on the list of plants that can be patented, if you will. That's sort of the wrong term, but a commonly used one. In America, in particular, this is difficult. There are, Europe and other parts of the world, you can seek plant breeders' rights on cannabis varieties. But this is all just the wrong approach. It To get a patent granted, not necessarily on a plant, but to get a, a process patent granted these days is pretty easy. The bugaboo is... is when it's challenged. So you spend X amount on getting your patent and spending it on your patent lawyer and doing everything to the best of your abilities. Then somebody comes along with more money than you and spends 10 times X to challenge your patent. And that, so really litigation is where it all comes down to. There's far too much litigation in the world already, frankly. So but there's a different approach. And this is what phylos and other genome groups are are saying in America. You can identify the variety you have. It would be called verification rather than certification. You can show genome-wise that somebody else says the same thing you have. You can establish that you are there first by registering your variety with one of the groups working in the States. Phylos is a good example. And then you can show that It was already out there before somebody else claimed it, okay? That's what we're calling defensive property rights. You're making it part of the public domain so that everyone owns it. Not that somebody say they own Blue Dream. Everybody's got Blue Dream, okay? Just one of thousands of examples I Mm -hmm. pull off the top of my head. It is public domain. You have it, I have it, you know? So all you can do is... Get Blue Dream sequence, gen- genome sequence, in the public record so that it shows that. And somebody else can't come along and say, Blue Dream is mine. Or actually, I call it you know, Irving, and Irving is <laughs> mine. But actually, Irving is Blue Dream. So you know, this is, this is a way of defending things so that people can't get them. It's not a way of defending things so that you can keep other people from getting it. Because it's sure. kind of too late for most of that. If somebody has something they've held close to the chest, something they started with original land races and have never really let out, there's a chance when rules change that you'd be able to patent those things effectively. At the moment, that's really not the case.
1: Well, this is a sticky situation that we are talking about with Robert Clark, and if you are enjoying this conversation, please stay tuned. We have to take another quick break for our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The
0: Grow Show with Kyle Cushman will return once we cultivate through this short
3: commercial break.
0: Sitting downtown in a railway station won't joke over the land. It's time to hem present, only on Cannabis Radio.
2: Sitting
0: downtown in a railway station won't joke over the land. Time to plant some more conversational seeds. You're listening to the Grow Show with Kyle Gushman, only on cannabisradio.com.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Grow Show with Kyle Cushman. We are talking with friend and mentor of mine, Robert Connell-Clark. Let's talk a little bit about your involvement in the business side of things just a bit. You are the founder and director of the BioAgronomics Company. Would I be wrong in saying that the primary service of BioAgronomics that it offers is in assisting people in starting up cannabis-related businesses? What exactly does BioAgronomics do?
2: Bioagronomics Group is an international consultancy. We're uh, seeking business in any realm where cannabis is becoming normalized. We really don't want to work in the gray area. This is not an area where we're interested. We're looking towards a time when there's more widespread normalization and legalization of, of cannabis. What we can help with is on many, many levels. Personal experience-wise, I'm interested in uh, commercial cultivation, plant improvement, breeding projects, long-range things. We have a great team of organic natural growers, biocontrol people, indoors, outdoors. But most importantly, we have people who can help with compliance. What mm-hmm. we're calling is pre-compliance. If you want to start a business in this country right now, you're going to uh, business involved with herbs of any kind, you're going to have to deal with the Food and Drug Administration. They have lots of rules that apply no matter what you're doing, so you better comply with those to begin with and save your energies for the special rulings that they will eventually come up with for the cannabis industry. On top of that, we can help with life-seeking licensing in various jurisdictions and basically regulatory control. We have a team of people who can advise jurisdictions if they want help in setting up rulings. We'd really like to work overseas and as well as working in North America and Europe. So,
1: yeah. Fabulous. So finally, I want to ask, do you yourself advocate for the labeling of cannabis as medicine or do you feel like it's a substance that doesn't really need the medicine label?
2: I think the medicine label... Although I will say once again that we all know on our hearts and minds that cannabis is a great medicinal herb, effective for a number of indications. We can't go there. We can't put that on labels. As soon as we do it will be shot down immediately. Cannabis to me is a healthcare product. It's not a medicine. Mm. And
1: I'll- as soon as we
2: say it's a medicine, we attract attention from those who regulate
1: medicines. That's their job. See, I, I ask this because I see that the disconnect for average society seems to be that cannabis is really only the second socially acceptable drug after alcohol. There really are no other socially acceptable recreational drugs and they're having trouble wrapping their head around that it is a miraculous medicine but it is also a fabulous recreational substance.
2: Yes, I have a little trouble with the word recreational. It sort of invokes geriatric tennis players dangling joints or something. I, I, I don't quite get that term. But <laughs> t- it's an adult use issue. You know, you can decide to call it whatever you want. That sure. is fun, I guess, is why we call it recreation. But right, it, it isn't always fun, and it, it serves its purpose in other ways, and. I think just cubbyholing cannabis into these different terms is is difficult. I really don't like the term industrial hemp much either, but it's less controversial, but it it, it sort of just makes it sound like uh, some odd version of heavy metal to me. I just don't quite get it.
1: It might not be the best term, but I sure wish we had it uh, available to us here. We are running out of time, Rob, and I want to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. I had a great time. Can you tell us how best to reach you or where we can catch your next speaking engagement? I don't have anything planned. I'm away for the
2: summer. I certainly will try to attend the Emerald Cup in December this year. What a great event. Everybody should try to, to come into that one. There's going to be a really good event in Sonoma in July in Hopland at the Real Goods facility there. I believe they're going to call it the Festival near the end of July, maybe the 23rd or 4th that weekend. That would be a really good if anybody's in the area. I'd, I'd uh, attend that one if possible. I don't think I can make it, but I thought I'd give them a plug.
1: Good old hippity Hopland. Man, that's a nice place up there in Mendocino. I, I miss it. Absolutely. Man, thanks once again. We are out of time. I want to thank our guest, Robert Clark, and producers for making the show possible. Please make sure to check out my website, kylecushman.com, where you can find out where to follow me on social media and upcoming events that I'll be attending. You can find new episodes of The Grow Show every Wednesday by going to cannabisradio.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My thought for the day... Be a random act of kindness. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Kyle Cushman. And as always, please stay lifted.